Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. And so I began to discover like this false dichotomy in politics where if you cared about social justice or you felt you were on the Democratic side, you'd had to go left and then drop your convictions. Or if you were on the Republican side of it and you cared about these moral issues, then you have to go right and drop your compassion. And I said, nah, this is a false dilemma. Like why, because I'm in one party or the other, do I have to deny my witness? This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me again on Where You're From. This week, we're talking with Justin Gibney, and let me tell you, he is a breath of fresh air. Why? Because we are living in a very polarized moment when debate around public policy issues and how our faith should influence them sound more like pro wrestling shouting matches than political discourse. Faith and politics were a part of Justin's life from a young age, but as he matured, he had to find new ways to hold together the underlying tension between deeply held convictions and maintaining a heart of compassion for our neighbors. This is truly a message for our time. Justin Gibney is an attorney, political strategist, and ordained minister in Atlanta, Georgia. Shout out ATL. He is also the co-founder and president of the Ann Campaign. You can find out more about Justin by checking out the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Justin Gibney, where you're from? Denver, Colorado. Ah, I did not know that. Yeah. Okay, so how did your folks end up in Denver? So both my parents are from Illinois. My dad's from the west side of Chicago. His sister ended up getting a scholarship to go to a small college in Denver. He ended up moving with her and his mother there. And my mom, she's from Decatur, Illinois, and they just ended up there at the same time. Interesting. Okay, so already breaking news of something I didn't know. So, like, were there other siblings you had around you at the time? Yeah, so I have a younger sister. She's uh, four years younger than I. How do you feel like being born in Colorado kind of influenced you in some way? You know, it gave me a diverse kind of experience. So Colorado is a pretty diverse place. I got to be around a whole lot of different types of people. So I I don't remember having a class where there wasn't Hispanics, Blacks, Whites, you know, kind of together. I got to see not only people of different races, but people of different classes. Mm. So, you know, one of the things about being in Atlanta now, I'm not around a whole lot of maybe lower income white people. Uh, But growing up, I was around a variety of different people. And I also think, you know, being in Denver during the time of Mayor Wellington Webb, who was the the mayor most of the time I was there, gave me somebody to kind of look up to and see myself in, in politics as well. 
Wellington Webb. Tell me, I don't know anything about him. So he was the first black mayor in Colorado. Mm -hmm. He became somewhat known on the um, national scene, worked a lot with with Bill Clinton and folks like that. Okay. Really did a lot of work regarding uh, Denver's transit system and and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. How did you get so connected to like civic service and the offices of like the mayor and things like that? Was that just natural? Were there some other things around you that put that on your radar? That's a good question. I think probably a lot of it had to do with my mom being like the community liaison for the transportation system. So she was just around those people quite a bit. And I didn't, may not have known exactly what a mayor was or what they did, but I knew it was somebody who kind of ran the city. Mm. And I knew that he kind of looked like me. Okay, gotcha. Now you're very much known for kind of thinking through civic engagement and politics through the lens of faith. When did faith become a big part of your story? So I grew up in the church. Uh, my mom's a preacher's kid. My grandfather, maternal grandfather, was a bishop in the Church of Living God, PGT Nation. So going to their conventions, all you know, always being around that. I don't remember not being in church, mm. but also from you know. PGT Nation to being in, you know, more charismatic churches and also Baptist churches got a variety of perspectives, too. So did you end up graduating from high school in Colorado? Yeah. So I graduated from high school in Colorado. I get a football scholarship to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and end up playing football at Vanderbilt. Okay, well, that's kind of a big thing. That's the D1 school playing football. When did you start playing football? I started playing football when I was eight. Gotcha. So like, when did that become something you thought, hmm, I could actually make some moves with this? Always. I think uh, <laughs> while I wasn't thinking about politics, I certainly was thinking about sports a whole lot in my okay. younger days. So I always thought, OK, I'm going to play in college. You know, I just love sports. So Got it. it was always something that was on my mind. Man. So by the time you get to high school, what would you say your performance level was compared to the peers around you? I mean, I was always kind of somewhat at an elite level. When I first got to high school, I was smaller. So I was I think I went to high school. I was like four eleven, uh-huh. and I was still a pretty good player, but I had to try so much harder mm-hmm. and I hit a growth spurt in my sophomore year. And that's when I went back to kind of playing at an elite level. Got you. Got you. So like out of your high school class, for instance, how many would have gone and gotten a scholarship from a D1 school? So each year we probably had about three D1 guys. So, I mean, yeah, it was a it's a pretty big accomplishment. Yeah. Division one. That's the top of the top. So why did you choose Vanderbilt? You know what? I looked at other schools, you know, uh, Colorado State, Northwestern, even Oregon. It was early on back then and just thought that I wanted to play in the SEC, man. I wanted to have a chance to play in the swamp, to play against Alabama and all that. And so that's what I was looking forward to. Ended up actually after my junior year in high school, I went to the football camp at Vanderbilt, played well and got offered a scholarship. So that's kind of how it went down. Okay, for those who don't know what the SEC stands for, what that is, break that down, why that would have been a particularly important place for you to play. So the SEC is the Southeastern Conference, also known as Speed Eliminates Competition. So that's where you get your your Georgias, your Alabamas, Florida. It's, it's, It's a conference that is fairly dominant in college football. Yeah, you know, I love how I see the lawyerly type, just nuance that you add about something. No, they're not somewhat dominant. The SEC is, it is the definition of dominant. No question about it. And I think that says something about you that you were like, I want to experience that challenge because Vanderbilt isn't necessarily known as being a dominant school in that conference, but that didn't deter you at all. Yeah, I've always wanted to play against the best competition. I remember even when I was small, I'd go to the guy that was the biggest on the other team and try to guard him. That has been kind of a a posture that I've taken. And I think it comes just 
from my dad saying, hey, you always want to compete against the best. Okay. So was your dad an athlete? Tell me a little bit about his influence in your life to this point. Yeah. So my dad was an athlete. He was often my football coach and my basketball coach, things of that nature. And so he was always around a huge influence, you know, did have struggles with alcoholism, which I was able to learn from that too, and infidelity and things were kind of crazy early on for me. But even seeing him in his kind of brokenness helped me as well. So early on in my childhood, I think he recovered probably when I was around eight years old. And just seeing him recover and lean, you know, and that's part of my faith journey too, seeing how he leaned on God to get him to where he needed to be for his family meant a lot to me and always stuck with me. Wow. Yeah, that does sound like a powerful image on a lot of different fronts to kind of cling on to. So did he play in college? So he didn't play in college. Like I said, he's from the uh, west side of Chicago, probably Mm -hmm. didn't have the same opportunities that I had, but certainly went out of his way to make sure that, number one, I had a father in my life, which he didn't have Mm -hmm. always. And just to give me the opportunities that he didn't have. And he made a, a very deliberate effort to do that. I'm imagining then hearing his passion for sports, you know, for his family, that seeing you excel in something that he cared about must have been a pretty significant thing for him. Yeah, I think it was. He was proud of what I accomplished. And the the truth of the matter is I'm an attorney now because of him, Hmm. right? It's something that I never even questioned that I was going to be an attorney because I remember him saying that him and his father wanted to be attorneys, didn't necessarily have those opportunities. And so it was just something I never questioned. I just kind of always figured I would do. Wow. So even before you discovering some type of affinity for law, you just wanted to do it for the sake of what your grandfather and your father couldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. It was for the family. It was kind of to fulfill a generational dream, so to speak. Wow. That's major. So what was it about law that you think prompted them to want to even go into that profession? Why was that such an important thing for them? I think my dad's very analytical and probably had a lot to do with the ways they were treated by the law. You know, I've heard stories of my grandfather being beaten, my grandfather's dad basically being lynched in Missouri. Mm. Those might have been kind of motivations to be part of the mechanism, as Thurgood Marshall would say, of society. So that's the kind of way I looked at it. It's a very good way to help your people in circumstances where they may feel uh, helpless. Gotcha. So like conversations around civil rights and justice was something that was just kind of par for the course in the Giveny household? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so you get to Vanderbilt, got a athletic scholarship to play football, which means that you didn't just make the team, but like they recruited you. But you also at this point are going there to get a law degree, right? Yeah. So first I go in to study uh, social policy. Okay. They had the organizational and leadership development program. I focused on social policy and philosophy. Okay. At that point, were you like going to church? Were you reading your Bible and trying to grow? Or were you just kind of more of a nominal believer at that moment? I think when I left home, I didn't have a steady church home. I mean, I was going every now and then. I probably wasn't reading as much as I should have been, but I believe that I would tell you that. But yeah, I remember going to this class freshman year and it was a French teacher. Mm-hmm. And from day one, it was like a, this is why you must question the Bible. It was just pushing back against the whole idea of orthodoxy. Mm. So how did you respond to that? Initially, I pushed back, but then I realized I didn't have an apologetic. I didn't really have the tools to push back on a professor who had been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice to have Lisa Fields and Jude three around during that time. But since they weren't there during that time, I did struggle with faith because I hadn't looked at it from an intellectual level. And so I think over time, it wore on me. And then I realized that a different type of Christianity 
where I didn't really have to follow the precepts was actually seemed convenient at the time. So I kind of just went along with it, right? Where I could live the way I wanted to live as long as I did nice things for people and maybe did some community service. Mm. And so I actually kind of bought into it just to a certain extent. Okay. Wow. So what's kind of the next phase and how is football going at this point? Football was good. I think I started for two and a half, three years, made some of my best friends that I talk to all the time to this day and had some great experiences on the football field. I mean, that's just something I'll never forget. That's a brotherhood Mm -hmm. that really just meant a lot to me. Yeah. Oftentimes people say that sports and especially football in a lot of ways kind of teaches you life lessons. You know, what would you say was some of those lessons that you would have learned? I mean, from the basics, when you get knocked down, you got to get back up. Mm. This is what I tell people all the time. When it comes to physical and mental challenges, football challenges you in that way like I think few other sports can. Because you literally have to be physically and mentally tough to keep going. Somebody's going to get the best of you at some point. And the question is, are you going to keep going? Mm. And that's one of the things I learned. Uh, teamwork. And then I learned a little bit about leadership. I had people around me who were smart enough to plant seeds. Mm. And I think some of those seeds grew into and helped me become the leader that I I try to be today. Okay. So you have this focus on social policy and philosophy. Was there just a clear straight shot to law school at that point? Or did you ever waver in that goal? I don't think I ever wavered in it. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, if I wouldn't be thoughtful (laughs) enough about it. But I just, it's just an assumption. It was just something that I said, this is how it is. And that's what I'm going to do after I graduate. Did you go to Vanderbilt for law school too? I did. Yeah. Okay, cool. Was it hard to leave football behind and just next phase of life? Incredibly hard. I realized that I had been playing football, like I said, since I was eight. So I've been playing football for the majority of my life. I didn't know what it was like without it. And it became an idol, to be honest. Mm. And so I remember the first game that I went back to that I wasn't playing. And I remember almost having a breakdown. I remember The crazy part about it is I was sitting down and I think I was sitting one seat too far over and some random dude was like, hey, man, you're my seat. And just the thought of not like having to move seats, not being on the field, it was just a heavy, heavy moment when you're held up as being special. Right. He's special because he does this really, really well. And when that's over, it's almost like a child star. Right. It's just like, who am I? Mm, (laughs) Right. Like, Who am I? And can I live as somebody who's not looked up to as being special? Mm. And nobody really prepares you for that. Mm -mm. And like, honestly, man, I have a lot of friends, some here, some not here anymore, that I don't know if they ever made the transition. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, and especially not having ever played myself, but knowing the unique camaraderie, the intensity, the emotional buy-in, putting your body on the line week in and week out, and all of a sudden... That ends. And it's just like, okay, next phase of life. That just sounds like something pretty challenging. Yeah. So how long is your stint in law school? Three. Three Three years. years. Okay. So was there a moment in law school where you decided to focus on a particular aspect of law? Initially, I wanted to be in criminal law. So I thought about being a public defender and all that. Then I looked at my law school loans and I said, you know what, (laughs) I need to go into a more corporate setting. And so that's the way I went. I went into uh, medical malpractice defense, but I didn't go to law school to do that. That's just kind of where I ended up. Got it. I hear that all the time, like that reality of loans and just having to (laughs) pay the piper, so to speak, is is real. 
Now, you mentioned when you first got to college, you were kind of in and out of church or just not very frequent. Does that continue on that pattern and throughout law school? Yeah, I mean, it probably got worse once I kind of bought into that new gospel, so to speak. So, yeah, I probably just stopped going unless I was at home out of respect for my parents. Mm, Okay. And when you say that new gospel, how would you summarize that new gospel, that other gospel? Well, I I don't know. I kind of saw it as a gospel that's centered around you rather than Christ, Mm -hmm. right? It's a gospel that says society needs to transform, but your heart doesn't necessarily need to be transformed. You can kind of follow what your heart says, Mm -hmm. which again, gave me the license to just do whatever I wanted to do. And I had to, at a certain point, come to the conclusion that not only was I hurting myself, I was hurting a lot of people that cared about me Mm -hmm. in just living very selfishly and not surrendering to some higher than me. Got it. So it sounds like living life, moving forward, advancing your career. At this point, you're practicing law in Atlanta, medical malpractice. What happens that causes you to look or think differently about your faith at that point? I think God just brought me low, just getting into situations. I was like, man, I have no business being in this situation. I remember one time, and I haven't, I don't know if I've really even talked about this a whole lot before, but I remember one time I almost got a DUI. Mm. Probably should have gotten one. Mm. And I was sitting there. And saying, this can't be my life. First of all, I'm coming from a family where I grew up with an alcoholic. How do I get myself? And I, I, don't, I was never an alcoholic, but how do I get myself into a situation where I'm playing with the same issues, mm-hmm. right? And I think slowly God started to work in my heart to say, you were made to be more than this. Your grandparents didn't teach you the scripture and go through all this for you to be here. Your grandmother didn't stay on her knees for you to achieve and succeeded on one end, on a professional end but be completely failing on a spiritual end, which was even more important. Yeah. The other part to me that, I mean, I would imagine there's some ripple effect with even someone who's practicing law getting in trouble with the law and just how that could be a house of cards that makes the whole thing collapse. Yeah. I was, I was taking some chances Mm. and thankfully I think I was convicted by some of those experiences and just, again, just hurting people who I knew were there for me, but Mm. being so selfish that I wasn't taking others into consideration. So at that point, what's like your first steps toward, okay, I need to deepen my walk or draw closer? So I start going back to church. I start getting back in the word, just start slowing down. I mean, from probably the middle of undergrad all the way through law school, all the way to like my third or fourth year as an attorney, you know, I was early 20s. I was an attorney. You know what I'm saying? I actually had some money and I felt like I could do whatever I wanted to do. And God just showed me how empty that life was Mm. that, yeah, I could say I can follow my heart, but where is this really leading me? And thankfully, he had the grace to convict me in that regard. Wow. So so it sounds more subtle than a altar call, you know, with tears in your eyes. I mean, I might have a couple of those, too. Okay, But it wasn't just the Damascus. I mean, it, it took a little bit of time before I fully caught on. Okay. So I still don't hear anything about politics or the integration of faith and politics at this point. Yeah. So probably right around that time or maybe just before that. I mean, all of this is happening together. I have a group of friends who most of them went to Morehouse, a couple of them went to Howard. We used to just get together a couple of times a week and we either talk about football or we talk about politics. And I remember one day we were just like, man, why are we being so academic about this politics conversation? Like we're at a prime age to actually be engaged in it. So let's do it. So we created this group called Atlanta Politico, and we actually did research on all the mayoral candidates and the mayoral campaign that was coming up. And based on that research, there was a brother from Howard University, 
who was at that time a state senator. And he just stuck out, State Senator Kasim Reed. And so we basically went to the office and said, how can we help? And I was still working, so I was just volunteering, but I volunteered every day. As soon as I got off of work, every weekend I would be at the campaign office. And we started off early. I mean, we're going down Cascade, which is a major street in the black community in Atlanta, where nobody, you know, his name wasn't ringing bells at the time. Mm -hmm. But we stuck to us for so long that we went from knocking on doors to even doing some debate prep, things of that nature. And he ended up winning. And at that point, that's when I entered into politics. I uh, went into the Atlanta law department and then I just started running campaigns. After being on his campaign, I just started running campaigns. Man, hold on, pause for a second, because that sounds, again, like the combination of this football mentality. You were not intimidated by the fact that he was a small name. But that process seems amazing to take someone who no one even knew of and to work on the ground level to see them actually win and become the mayor of Atlanta. I mean, what? That, how did that feel? Yeah, that process, watching that process was amazing. And maybe it was naivete, too, to be like, well, we don't know. <laughs> you know, we know he's at like 2%, but maybe he can do it. And so it certainly wasn't me by myself, but just being part of that team to see that through was crazy. The other thing, though, Russell, to be honest with you, that it did is I still had that idolatry with football in me. Mm-hmm. I had a need for an adrenaline rush, a need for competition. Mm-hmm. And I think I took that and said, oh, politics can give me that too. Mm-hmm. So I started off in politics doing a lot of the things that I tell people not to do today, right? Being the kind of person and say, hey, I'm going to do what I got to do because I know people want people like me on their team that just get it done. Mm-hmm may give you plausible deniability, but you know that it's done at the end of the day. So my ethics probably initially weren't where they needed to be. And I had to repent and pray about that. Mm. But that's kind of how I entered into the game. So at this point, I mean, it's sounding like this was a formative experience also that maybe changed the trajectory from medical malpractice to something else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So again, I go into working for the city. I'm doing a lot of compliance, all that. But then I'm also taking leaves of absence when the mayor asked me to run a campaign, right? So I was running a lot of those campaigns while at the same time doing, you know, uh, legal work. Okay. So you're in these two worlds now and it sounds like it's all going well. Like you're in that system. I mean, I also know that one of the just informal benefits you get when you get to help somebody who has this position of power is you get that, you know, residual sense of power yourself. Oh yeah. So none of that sounds like something that would end up in challenging the very system that you are a part of. So how does that happen? God was working on me. And so during this time, I told you the experience with almost getting the DUI. And I'm just I'm just trying to put things together. Like, I have to be a better person than this. Like, as a child, I went through and I seen how it hurts family when a man's more worried about having fun and doing his thing than worried about the people he's responsible for. I don't want to have a family and end up in that space. So I just keep working. And one of the things that started to hit me was like, you know, I'm in a very progressive space, right? I'm coming from Denver, Colorado, which is progressive. I go to Vanderbilt University. I go to Atlanta, which is extremely progressive, right? And I'm in democratic politics. You know, you talk about the, the Church of Living God, PGT Nation, that's orthodox, right? There's, there's an orthodoxy there. So I was always in progressive spaces, but as is the Black church tradition, you always had that orthodox perspective that was right there too. But as I'm looking in politics, I'm not seeing the application of that. Right. I'm seeing black Christian candidates who run or run for city council in black districts 
being forced to run like they're in Midtown, mm-hmm. being forced to run like secular progressives. And I'm like, I know you don't believe that. But what I began to discover was that a lot of my friends or people I knew who run for office, it became a given that if I want to run, I can't stay within that tradition. I need to become a progressive and I need to throw the rest of those convictions out. And it just really made me feel uncomfortable. I honestly felt disrespected. And I think it all came to a head in 2012 because I had run to be a delegate at the Democratic National Convention. And so what happens with the delegation, you meet in your small delegation, which is your state delegation. And then you go to what everybody sees, which is everybody in this big, you know, kind of coliseum or wherever when all the delegations come together. But as we were voting on things in the Georgia delegation, I was like, this is messed up. You know, there was a vote on whether to keep God given in the platform. So it was very clear they wanted that out. They didn't want to have that language in there. Long story, they ended up keeping it in, but it, it would just maybe look around and say, okay, we're different. We're, we're not all, you know, we're not all on the same page. Christians need to find some way to be distinctive within politics on both sides. And that becomes the seeds of what would become the AND campaign. So what I did was after that happened, I said, I got to do something, man. It, it was just hard on me. So I started meeting with anybody I knew who was like a political operative that was also a Christian. And I'm just talking about folks who might say something about Jesus <laughs> on Facebook. I was just hitting them up like, hey, man, we should meet. Let's talk. And so I had I don't even know how many meetings I had just with folks who were Christian. And I would talk to them. I say, man, so how do you feel about the direction that things are going? And they're like, most of it's cool. But, yeah, there's some things I don't feel comfortable with. I'm just afraid to say something because even back then you get blackballed like nobody wants to lose their livelihood. But at the same time, I had friends on the Republican side who were like, man, this isn't who I am either. Mm-hmm. And so I began to discover like this false dichotomy in politics where if you cared about social justice or you felt you were on the Democratic side, you'd had to go left and then drop your convictions. Or if you were on the Republican side of it and you cared about these moral issues, then you have to go right and drop your compassion. And I said, nah, this is a false dilemma. Like why, because I'm in one party or the other, do I have to deny my witness? Mm-hmm. And I just thought Christians weren't getting having an opportunity to bring their whole witness into the conversation. So I turn who I'm talking to and stop talking so much to political operatives and start talking to pastors, you know, especially young pastors and Christian artists and things like that. So I don't know how this happened, but I was just trying to find people anywhere that I, I could find them. And I run into Pastor John Amuchekwa. His church hasn't started yet. I see they're about to start the church. So I just reach out to him. Hey, I'm in politics. I just want to reach out and talk to you about what I'm trying to do. And so that's kind of where it starts. He introduces me to our dear friend, Show Baraka. I end up being in a program, Lead Atlanta, where I meet Angel Maldonado. Find out he's a Christian again through like Facebook or something like that. And that's the beginning of Ann Campaign. When we come back, we'll hear how Justin's compassion and conviction helped him bring clarity to a contentious court case and started drawing the attention of those around him, both good and bad. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today 
at preachingtoday.com. Hey, y'all, before we jump back into our conversation with Justin Gibney, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Dr. Debbie Turner Bell. This is where you're from. I just wailed. And then finally, once I got, you know, the torrent of that out, I just began to say, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why did you make me do this? I only did this because I thought this was what you wanted me to do. I wouldn't have done this if I'd known that, you know, and I just began to lament. Now let's get back into our conversation with Justin Gibney on where you're from. Wow. That sounds like quite a journey and also something that I mean, I don't want to try to make it sound bigger than it is, but it sounds like your vision is to really change not just a small group of people, but the way that we engage and specifically as believers, Mm -hmm. the way believers engage in politics nationally. Yeah, that's a pretty big goal. So, like, what did you find in terms of when you started asking these questions for people that kind of kept you going that said, man, I'm on to something here? Yeah, because it did feel very lonely, but the almost not everybody, but almost everybody I talked to was like, no, I'm not comfortable with where this is going on the right or the left. But they were afraid to speak out. Mm. And so I said, if I can just bring these folks together and let them know that they're not alone, there's a critical mass. They just have to be able to be brought together and encourage each other. And it kind of hit me because when I started Crucifix and Politics was the organization I started when I first got back from the DNC. And I brought a group of probably six or seven people together that first time. And just out of that group of six, the next time that we were at like a Democratic function or something like that, everybody was more emboldened. Hmm. It was like a light bulb went up. I was like, oh, we just needed to come together. We need to have solidarity and people will be emboldened to speak out. And so we actually went. I remember when the Hobby Lobby case came out, there was this big forum with the young Democrats about how everything was going to expose. So I said, look, we're going to go to this. I'm going to do the research about what really happened in the case. I'm going to give you guys the research. We're going to go and we're going to correct the narrative of what actually happened with the Hobby Lobby case. So you have a panel. There's probably a couple of people from Planned Parenthood, a couple of progressive elected officials. They give their spiels. But what's clear to me that none of them have read the case, hmm. like none of them actually knew what the case said. And so I had done all this research on the case. I had even looked up some progressive scholars who said, no, it's not the end of the world. And so it was interesting. We started asking questions and then answering questions. And by the end of the night, more people were asking us questions about what's going on with the case than were people on the panel. Wow. Because it was quite clear that we were better prepared. But this caught everybody off guard because for some reason, they just weren't used to Christians coming into the space, using those principles and being informed to change the narrative. Mm -hmm. And piece by piece, the way that the AND campaign kind of approaches different issues and approaches politics started to come together. So that was called crucifix and politics. Politics. So, which there's a little bit of and in there. So right. uh, when does the transition go to and campaign? So I at one point realized that this movement can't start with political operatives. It was still a little too scared, right? They were a little more emboldened, but they were still like, ah, I can't go all the way. Because I, I mean, folks got to eat, you know what I'm right. saying? So like right. they were willing to do more and speak up a little more, but not go to where we needed it to go. I turn and then I start talking to pastors, John Awuchekwa, man, just so many other folks. And that's when I meet show. And so that's when it turned. I said, okay, I got crucifix and politics. 
but I need something that's more focused on people in the pews and focused on church leadership rather than folks who are already deep in politics. Got it. All right. So let me zoom out for a second, because I know you probably have had to work through this yourself as well as field this question often. But why should Christians engage or be involved with this entire political mess and this thing, which can very often feel very unchristian, right? In terms of, you mentioned the type of plausible deniability and the ethics challenges. Why is that something that you were like, this is an important place for us to be? I think it, it comes from the great commandment. If you're at the second half of it, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, then you've got to care about their well-being. You've got to be socially concerned about your neighbor. Politics isn't the only way to do that, but it's certainly a robust way to show that you care about your neighbor. It's certainly a very powerful way to work within your sphere of influence to change the lives of others. It was more like, how can you better society, right, through this witness How can you correct what's going wrong in conservatism? How can you correct what's going wrong with progressivism through this biblical witness of love and truth, compassion and conviction? Okay. And I'm curious because obviously you didn't start this process being an outsider in that whole system. You were, in a sense, especially in Atlanta, an insider. How does that shift and that emphasis get received and responded to by those that were closest to you? Yeah, it was deep. So I told you about my experience in 2012. Anybody who knows me knows that I've been talking about this stuff for a long time. Right. And so I had a lot of capital within Atlanta politics because people knew who I was. They knew how hard I worked. You know, at this point, they knew I was a Christian. So I run to be a delegate in 2012. But then I also run in 2016 with a whole different plan. So I say, hey, here's what we're going to do. And this is still kind of crucifix in politics. We're going to run on a platform that's Christian. Because what happens is you go to this delegate selection event and you give like a two minute speech. And in that two minute speech, you're you're talking to everybody who's voting. Right. So it's a whole gym full of people. And when I spoke, I didn't say anything about the candidate. I talked about the importance of family, the importance of community, the sanctity of life, treating workers fairly. Right. So it was this platform that wasn't really it had a lot of Democratic stuff, but it also had some stuff that was more socially conservative. And this is in John Lewis's district. My slate ends up winning by over double the votes of anybody else based on a speech that was not strictly a progressive speech. Right. But we had done the organizing and I spoke directly to the people in the way that they could hear. So after I give that speech, because I did mention the sanctity of life, because I did mention transgender issues, the left tries to get me kicked off the state delegation. Mm -hmm. They go and they say, "Okay, he was being transphobic. He was being this. He's being that. He needs to go. Because I had been in politics for so long, I knew that was coming. So what I did was I recorded the speech. And so when they came to me, I just showed them the speech and said I didn't say anything that was hateful towards anybody. Right. Like it wasn't even close. But not only did I do that, I had a list of pastors who were calling to the Democratic Party basically saying, if this becomes a problem, if y'all mess with Justin, it's going to be a problem. Mm. So they back off. Again, a microcosm of what I felt like the Ann campaign could do later on. But that's when things started to change because I had a state senator who's been a state senator forever come to me and say, basically, I'm going to tell everybody what you did and, you know, you need to watch out. Mm. As if I didn't know that people would know, you know, know what I did. 
but it began to be a tension because even with the mayor that I was working for, what I was saying wasn't necessarily things that he would be able to endorse. Mm -hmm. And so as time goes on, like I said, I, have, I still have a whole lot of friends in politics, a lot of different mentors, but then there's certain parties you're not going to get invited to, right? There's certain lanes that you're just not going to be in. But I think I had counted the cost. I had seen this coming. I had planned for it and prepared for it and God prepared me for it. But it certainly was a change in that I still can call several city council members and talk to them. Do they want you necessarily on all their flyers, though? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, with some of the stances that you've taken. And that's just how it is. But that's something that I felt I had to do rather than to be the one to run, to kind of be the one to say, OK, how do we fix this and create another path? How different do you think the motivation of seeing political involvement and engagement as an expression of love your neighbor, how different is that approach than what you see, which is common in our political discourse today? It's opposite. I mean, it's about power. It's an addiction to power. It's a fear of losing power. It's about being able to be in control of the situation and be able to silence the people that you don't want to listen to. Again, coming from a different tradition, coming out of, you know, my grandfather, a civil rights era preacher, that just was not our point of view. Mm. You know, I didn't know for a long time that you could be a Christian and not believe in social justice. <laughs> like when my grandfather talked about Jesus, justice was right in the conversation. So I was just coming from a completely different perspective. And it's not that my perspective was perfect. Right. I certainly learned things and I think helped out. It helped my theology when I run into the folks. And it might have been John Wichega who introduces me to G.K. Chesterton. Mm. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I say, oh, I can add this to, you know, the Gardner C. Taylor <laughs> sermons that I've been reading. But it's helping me. C.S. Lewis, all those guys. It's helping me kind of put all this stuff together. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think the approach to politics was very much in that civil rights generation, black church kind of tradition mm. is where it's just how I saw is the lens through which I viewed society. So like at this point, you know, obviously you're more committed in your faith and I'm guessing you're reading scripture more, you know, what was some of the biblical basis behind you seeing it play itself out that how one could love their neighbor through civic engagement? It was certainly reading Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 15, where Paul's talking to the church of Ephesus about unity within the church. And he tells them, basically, you have to be able to speak the truth in love. Mm. You can't be the type of person who's moved by every type of teaching. Mm. Like you're moving with the wind, you're moving with wherever the shore is going. No, you need to know what you believe and you need to, regardless of the circumstances, be able to speak the truth in love. And that right there, I mean, that's the foundation of the AND campaign. Mm. Because when I see that, I say, oh, it's just like, again, it's like a light bulb that says the gospel is love and truth. And in many instances, these two ideologies that we're fighting over and we're somehow trying to fit ourselves into are missing one or the other and sometimes both. Hmm. That's where ands come from. It's, it's the love and truth. It's the compassion and the conviction. It's finding a way to combine the social justice and the moral order. This hmm. is a better way to go than us just trying our hardest to be ideologically conservative or right? trying our hardest to fit ourselves into ideological progressivism. Okay, so the and you said is compassion and conviction. 
Right. Right. Give me an example of what compassion looks like in the social civic arena. Yeah, I think the compassion is saying, even when I disagree with someone or think they've done something wrong, can I put myself in their shoes? Can I show them grace? Can I still love them and fight for their protection? Can I see the human dignity in someone that I disagree with or even somebody that hates me? Hmm. To me, that's the compassion side of it. And the conviction side is, is, you know, it starts with doctrine. What is the truth? What does the Bible have to say about a certain issue? And once we know what the Bible has to say about a certain issue, well, the, we know that our religion isn't just black letter law. Right. It's not just yet wrong, right, this, that. No, the compassion then comes in to say, okay, we know what the Bible says. We know what the word says into it. How does our compassion help us build relationships, care about others, Got and it. so on? So it's those two things. And these are interdependent. And I think, unfortunately, within our public square, they're seen as in conflict. If I love someone, I can't tell them the truth, right? right? Jesus just never did that. Hmm. Jesus cared so much and so deeply about people, but he did not coddle. He's loving, he's getting people out of bondage, but he's also telling them, but you got a bondage inside of you too. Hmm. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about even Esau Macaulay's book, how he points out, especially in the black ecclesial tradition, that it was about social transformation and also personal transformation. Yeah. And so it's easy to, to blame society. And there's plenty to fix within society. How do you need to be fixed? How do you need to be transformed? And I think even within our, the Christian public witness, we have to still focus in on that. Got it. So what's it like to be experiencing criticism or uh, I guess just even rejection in some ways on both sides of this political spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's not always easy. I try to put it in perspective. And one of the things that I started doing early on that's helped me is when I read about, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and MLK and Abernathy, the stuff that they were going through is way worse than me getting criticized on Twitter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or, or me getting criticized at some uh, panel. So I try to keep it within that perspective. But but it's not always easy. I mean, you have the conservatives saying, you know, that you're a Marxist and, uh, and all this other stuff. You have the progressive saying that you're following whiteness by believing in, you know, the authority of scripture. Then you even have people who are care about social justice, who are closer to you that are saying, well, why are you critiquing progressives and Democrats when the other side is so bad? Right. And both sides kind of say this. And it became hard for me because when I got into some of these other circles, I was with people who had become from a very conservative place. And so their focus is on the faults of conservatism. And so anything that didn't go along with that, they're like, why would you even talk about something else? <laughs> they didn't understand. I was coming from more of a progressive point of view. So right. while they were moving away from the errors of some kind of conservative cultural Christianity, I'm moving away from some of the more progressive stuff. And I've seen those faults. So I think there's a sometimes even within some of the deconstruction stuff, there's a naivete to say, yeah, I see what's wrong with conservatism. Let me go all the way to progressivism. And I'm saying, bro, I've been there. You know what I'm saying? That's right. not what you want to do. And I think there was a lot of misunderstanding, even some rivalry that came out of folks just not understanding. We may have two different lenses, right. but hear me out. Like, right. I'm not doing this because I want to impress the people that you're trying to get away from. I'm doing this because you do need to understand there's an error that you're walking into and you need to see it. 
So at what point do you, because you mentioned this shift happens from reaching out to operatives and people who were in politics to then turning to lay people or, or even pastors who are mostly in a Christian space. When is the moment that you experience a sense of confirmation, right, that this and campaign thing is actually hitting a nerve in the same way that it did when you saw the operatives become more bold about their faith? Oh, um, well, I don't know if it was one event, okay. but there have been instances where, you know, I give the sermon or I give the speech and then I have Bishop Claude Alexander calling me say, man, I love what you're doing. I think one of the biggest ones is when I sat down with Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, hmm. who used to be over the Congressional Black Caucus. And she was just moved by the end campaign's framework. Because for those who don't know Barbara Williams Skinner, she's been in the game a long. She's one of the only well-known Democrat Christians in D.C. that's standing ten toes down on scripture and hasn't moved an inch. Mm -hmm. And she's still respected. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they don't give her a hard time over it because they know who she is and what she's meant to the movement and, and all those things. And when I went and spoke to her and she was like, I love what you guys are doing. How can I help? There was almost this sort of relief, like. I've been waiting for some younger folks to do this. Mm. Most people perceive that we're even more polarized, those two sides that you talked about now than we were when you first started going into this thing, you know, 10 years ago. Is that how you see it? And if so, like, what gives you hope? Yeah, I can't I can certainly can't say that things have necessarily gotten better on a broad scale. So a national scale, I think things have gotten a little bit worse. However, on the ground, you see Christians that now have, and it's not just us, but you see us being helpful in equipping Christians with a framework. So when I go to Christian colleges and universities and hear folks talking about, man, I read the book, I listened to church politics, they now have a framework to start to push back against what they're seeing in the public square. So while on a wide scale, things may have gotten a little worse, the hope is in the midst of that, I see something coming that is different where people are saying, no, I have not only a framework, but I have a mechanism to start to change how people look at this and to be engaged fully in politics, but do it in a more faithful way. And that's something else that I think is worth exploring, because one could hear from what you're saying is that by saying that there is a Christian framework, that means that there is a specific way that Christians must agree on every policy issue or every approach. Is that kind of what you're saying? So what I'm saying is that the Bible, through its precepts and through the grace of God, has given us a framework to work within. That means we're not going to necessarily agree on everything because the Bible doesn't speak to every specific policy, but we should have some of the same boundaries mm -hmm. and we should be close to trying to get to the same goal. Right. And so, no, I don't think Christians will ever agree on every single policy. But if we're really following the gospel, we should be close enough to be able to work together on a lot of issues that right now we seem to be divided on. So I'm kind of curious because we started this conversation. You got into law because of the opportunities that generationally your dad and your grandfather were not able to take advantage of. How do they see what you're doing now? I mean, in light of the fact that it's kind of different than practicing law. It's unconventional, man. I think my dad is very proud of what I'm doing. Obviously, my, my grandfather passed while I was still in high school. But I think he's, he's proud of what we're doing. You know, knowing what faith did for him and his relationship with Jesus did for him to see me 
still be dealing in politics, still using my law degree and, and the things I learned in law school for the kingdom, I think he's expressed to me that's something that, that he is proud of and something that I'm just blessed to be able to do, blessed to, that God gave me this opportunity. That's great. So you said that the framework, the basis of in campaign's understanding of how to engage in politics is love your neighbor as yourself, right? When I look at the full extent of what happened to the person who said that, Jesus Christ, he ended up being crucified in a very political process, you know, in terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. How do you see the cross and that example as relevant to the specific space of engaging in the public sphere as a Christian? Yeah, I think number one, it just reminds us of why we do this. Like if, if I wanted to be popular and liked by everybody, I, I chose the completely wrong, <laughs> wrong way to go about it. But if we're doing this to glorify God, if we're trusting that he actually has already given us the victory and we're serving him, even if we have to suffer, even if at the end of the day, the end campaign doesn't get exactly to where it wants to be, but we've planted the seed. That has to be enough. It can't be about winning. It more so has to be about what is your witness. And don't get me wrong, we always want to win. I'm still a political strategist. I don't strategize to lose. But there's a lot of compromises that you can make when winning becomes more important than that witness. And that's really what it means to me to say, hey, I might not see exactly what I want to see happen. And I might be in a position where I don't not only not get invited to the parties, but I may not receive any awards or, or any type of recognition. But what am I here for? And again, I think the civil rights movement and so many of those leaders and how not only they suffered, but the joy that they had even within what they were going through is always an inspiration for me to, to keep going. Faith and politics, compassion and conviction. Justin is a witness to holding these things together in a time when so many want to tear them apart. I am encouraged and inspired to live both and. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Barry and Brian for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.